welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, go to PCAPaintEd.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all you non-members out there, sign up for our free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the Apple Store and Google Play. In today's podcast, we feature an episode of Contractor Evolution from Breakthrough Academy. In this episode, Igor talks with Trent Cotney, partner at the firm Adams & Reese, about some of the most typical legal risks that a contractor faces and how to prevent them. Welcome back to Contractor Evolution. It's Igor here at the studio. Now, all business ventures, big and small, face some sort of legal risk. And whether you're realizing it or not, the business of contracting that we're in is on the riskier end of that spectrum. You're working on incredibly expensive assets. Your employees, your subcontractors, they're often working in these dynamic environments, heavy equipment, sharp tools. They're working at heights and there's a host of other hazards that they need to carefully navigate. And to make matters worse, there's an entire industry of compliance officers that are there just waiting for you or your team to put a toe out of line to slam you with a ticket or even worse. You're putting a lot on the line if you don't put measures in place to mitigate your exposure and your legal risk. Now think about it big picture, okay? You put thousands of hours of work every year into growing your company, not to mention the millions of dollars that are spent in the pursuit of growth. To do all of that on some shaky legal foundation is kind of like building your dream home on sand. Now, because of this, smart entrepreneurs in all kinds of industries, they put effort and money behind proactive and preventative legal work so that they can feel confident that the effort and the money that is being put in is working to build something that's going to last for the long haul. So today, our guest on the show is none other than Trent Cotney, who's a partner at the law firm Adams & Reese. Trent has been practicing construction law specifically for 23 years, and he runs a large team of lawyers within that firm that specialize in various specifics of construction law. He's also written two books on OSHA defense for contractors, and he himself is the general counsel for the National Roofing Contractors Association. So needless to say, Trent is one of the best in the business when it comes to protecting yourself and also just all things legal in our industry. In today's conversation, Trent and I, we get into the five fundamentals that every serious contractor needs to have in place to protect themselves. And we also talk about what you got to keep in mind and be really mindful of with each one of these five. For today's episode, we've also included Trent's contract checklist that you should reference when analyzing your own contracts for their ability to protect your company well. It's a free download. It's available right now, and it's linked right here in the episode description below. So go check it out. Without further ado, let's get into how to build a solid legal foundation with Trent Cotney. You're watching Contractor Evolution, where we unpack the systems, tactics, and skills you need to take your fast-growing contracting business to the next level. You're here to learn what it takes to scale up, work less, and increase profitability. You've come to the right place. Stay tuned to learn what separates the new breed of contractor from the old school, and welcome to your ultimate guide on the business of contracting. Hey, just before we jump into things, I wanted to let you know you can get the free resources that we talk about in this episode in the show description. So hit pause right now, go download them, and they'll be waiting in your inbox by the time we finish this episode. Trent, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. 
Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to today. Awesome. So Trent, I want to just open with a pretty general question here. So a lot of us, when we get into this industry, we of course don't come from, from any kind of legal background 99.9% .9 of the time. And, uh, and as we know in business, uh, as you put a lot of effort into growing your company, there are, you know, certain legal kind of fundamentals that are, that are important to have built. Um, can you tell us, like, you know, a lot of the time contractors aren't informed about a lot of these fundamentals, which totally makes sense because it's not in their background. In your experience, like, what are these kind of, you know, are there aspects of this construction law that, that most contractors are pretty uninformed about just due to the lack of background? Um, and and what, what kind of things does the average contractor just aren't, don't understand really around the legal risks that they face and how to mitigate them? So that's a great question. And look, we, we get this question all the time. It's it's what you don't know that ends up hurting you. And mm -hmm. in construction, unlike a lot of different industries, there are a variety of rules and regulations, everything from licensing to safety to employment to how you set up your company to very specific contracts, you know, that you, you've got to have provisions in there that, that are compliant. It, it is so heavily regulated uh, and it's difficult to ascertain that information, right? You can't just go to like one website and, and it has everything that you need. Uh, they, and in some ways they try to make it as difficult as possible to figure this stuff out. So I, I think really, you know, for, for the contractors listening and, and the trades that are listening, the, the thing that, that I, I consistently hear is what keeps them up at night is what they don't know, you know, where, right. what is going to come at them next. And, that's why I'm just a real big believer and try to, you know, proactively put out fires rather than having to react to them. Yeah, for sure. And when you think about a lot of the, the good work that you do, um, that, that you're really proud of, is, is most of it in that proactive space where you're setting up like legal foundations and infrastructure to, for, for contractors to not get in trouble? Is that the bulk of the work that you do? Absolutely. So uh, a lot of what I do, I call business therapy. I mean, that that is to a certain extent what we do and that we are actively engaged in solving problems for contractors. And um, what I am, I've always been a big believer in, this is a, almost 25 years in my career now, is that uh, I can do more good as an advisor, as, as a lawyer, as a counselor, uh, if I am able to uh, use an ounce of, of prevention rather than a pound of cure. And uh, part of that is, is just making sure that you have buttoned down your procedures, your policies, your contracts, your documents, you know, go ahead and, and instead of putting your, your head in the sand, really engage in, and uh, have a process of risk mitigation so that, you know, uh, you don't have to call lawyers. That's, that's the point is, is use them proactively so that you're not having to face litigation or disputes down the road. Yeah, 100%. I remember when this this really hit me um, about 10 years ago, I was running a painting company and I had, um, it was quite geographically spread. We had about kind of 18 small geographic divisions, about 280 painters combined. And, and I remember it really hit me how much risk really there is in this business when you've got so many people working on pretty expensive assets like customers homes they're up on ladders up on roofs there's like between the customer and the employee and and a ton of other kind of corporate structure stuff there's so much risk that you need to be hyper aware of and and, and get things right if, if you're going to build and something since then that's been really front of mind for me is 
you know, we put so much effort into building our companies. We, we work huge hours. We put in a ton of investment. Um, but really, if you don't have some of these legal fundamentals in place, a lot of this can come, can come crashing down pretty quick if you've not kind of crossed your T's, dotted your I's. And, um, and I think in the last, you know, in my case, in the last five years, I've spent a lot of time and money on legal stuff and it's not that we've had like one single issue ever. It's just, it's, it's putting these things in place so, so that something doesn't happen and that you're actually protecting the work, so much work that, that you are putting into growing the business. So um, all that stuff totally makes sense. Trent, what I'd love to get into, so you, you see this on such a macro scale, which is really cool from your perspective. I'd love to get into like the four or five fundamentals, like those, the, the, those, those real basic pieces of legal infrastructure that need to be in place in every contractor's company that's, that's serious about growing. So, um, let's kind of, let, let's talk about those, those, those key ones. And then, and then let's spend a couple minutes on each one of them. What does every contractor need to know on a basic level about each of these? So, um, so where do we want to start? Do you want to start on, on this kind of corporate structure one? Perhaps I think that's kind of the, 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 the base, the basic starting point. So what is it that is so important there? And what is it that most contractors don't understand on this corporate structure piece? So the first thing that you need done to, to really think about is, um, let's say you're engaged in, in the process of, of, you know, being a contractor doing construction, you really need to think about how you want to set up your company from a tax perspective. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big believer that, you know, every contractor should have, you know, a good insurance agent, a good accountant and a good lawyer. And this is the time where you really want to talk to your accountant about what is the best way to structure your company for tax purposes. It could be a pass-through, an S-Corp, a C-Corp, an LLC, an LLP, whatever it might be. So you need to think about that. You know, the other thing that after you've, you've kind of gotten past that initial threshold, the one thing that I, I really see a lot of, um, you know, growing businesses fail at is they don't backfill the administrative documentation. So. You have to keep regular meeting minutes, right? If you're if you're a company and you're operating, one of the key things that you have to do is show that you're a company and you're operating. It's it's, you know, everyone is so focused on sales that sometimes they forget the fundamentals of running a business. And part of it is that. I mean, there are other things that go along with that: paying your your business taxes, your business licenses, all of those types of things. The one other thing that that I really think is important is making sure that you have all of your corporate documents at your fingertips. You know, mm -hmm. 20 years ago, it was called a corporate book, and it was literally a book that you would have up on the shelf. Now it's just a file or a folder somewhere. And in that, you need to have your governing documents. So it could be your bylaws, it could be your operating agreement, it could be those types of things. You're going to have your meeting minutes there. You're going to have any kind of amendments or, you know, addenda that may come up from your corporate documents. You may want to keep your, you know, your your business licenses and business-related uh, tax information there as well. The goal is is to have all of that at your fingertips because there's nothing worse than having to try to hunt down meeting minutes from, you know, 10 years ago. You need to have all that in place. And trust me, I've been in a lot of disputes with contractors where there's a question as to what happened and when it happened. If you can't find that documentation or you don't have it, it you're not going to be in a good position to uh, to try to uh, put your best foot forward. So really recommend that, that you um, take the time, engage in the due diligence, engage in the process, make sure you are actively running your company like a company, you know, and, and that means keeping this type of paperwork. 
Yeah, and I would imagine all of this becomes even more important if there are multiple shareholders involved, like multiple owners involved, right? Right, right. The, the more chefs in the kitchen, the more problems you got. So yeah. um, you, if it's if it's just you, you can have meetings in the morning in your shower and call it a day. But uh, as you get shareholders or partners or other people involved, that's when you really have to make sure you understand what happens. And this is just a side note for, for our listeners. You know, one of the, the biggest disputes that I see among contractors is internally. And it happens because you don't have good documentation that explains what happens if there's a dispute between one partner and another partner, right? Yeah. And uh, everybody loves each other when they start the business, but you know, five or six years down the road when things are either going really well or really bad, it may take a turn. So what I really recommend is take the time on the front end, have that dispute resolution process uh, in place and know how to navigate those issues when they come up rather than just having to respond you know, as they happen. Yeah, totally. This stuff, it's, it's interesting we're talking about. This is really timely for me. I, I had a really long work day yesterday, and one of the, the things I was I was doing, so the, the main filing deadline in Canada was just yesterday, end of day yesterday for us, for, for a couple of the, these key year-end things. And um, I'm a huge proponent of, of having this stuff done right, done properly. And our, our tax advisory firm was just sending the instruction to the law firm for everything that needs to be put into the corporate book, which, as you said, is now online but everything is housed there. And I always double check to make sure that everything's put in there by the end of the year, that it's signed off on the days that it should. Um, it's, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's really awesome that, that we're, that we're touching on this. And just for any listeners that, that don't understand what it would a minute book is, can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So anytime you have a meeting, a corporate meeting, so let's say you've got, you know, three owners and you get together and you have a meeting about how to disperse profit or that you're going to buy some large equipment or whatever it is. You need to have meeting minutes that reflect what was discussed and some words of advice on meeting minutes. Less is usually more. So you don't want to get into too much detail. You want to be thinking carefully about any anything that could that uh, could turn up in court later. So if you have something that is sensitive, if you have something that is um, that could potentially be read by other people, then you want to really be careful about what you put there and maybe, you know, consult with outside counsel before you you put that kind of stuff there. But generally speaking, Meeting minutes are just a brief reflection of the meetings that you have as a company, and you need to maintain them regularly in order to be considered a business. Gotcha. What's a good cadence? Is this like a quarterly thing? Is twice a year enough? What, uh, what, what's, what's a good cadence here? Yeah, so usually I see quarterly, and there may be special meetings. Like there may be something, let's say you're opening up a new office, mm-hmm. uh, or you, anytime you have to call a boat, you want to have some meeting minutes there, right? And occasionally there will there will be those types of things where you may have more than just four. But usually, usually the way that I see it is that first quarter is sort of, um, you know, you've already got your budget in place and you already, you're starting to see what's going on and you're sort of planning and adjusting. Second is, is more of the same. Third, you start looking close to year end. And then your fourth quarter, you have a year end wrap up and a budget prep for the next year. So um, assuming you're on a calendar year type structure. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's that's a good rule of thumb. You know, I recommend at least four. 
Yeah, awesome. There's a uh, if you're listening to this and want to get a bit bit better of a background on this strategic planning process, there's a really great episode with myself, with Danny Kerr and James Dale, uh, the co-founders of Breakthrough Academy, where we get into this annual strategic planning cycle, both annually and quarterly, and how we do it. Um, all of those kind of key events are great things to, to have documented notes from and filed away. And um, one last question on this uh, trend before I move on is. Uh, you said, so this is important, I think, for listeners to know, it, it, it really is that the law firm is typically now what houses this digital record book. At least I know that's often the case in Canada. Is, it, is that the same in the United States? It is to a certain extent. You know, it, it, that way, you know, it's going to be safe. Um, you know, you can keep it internally. I just really recommend that you have backups, backups upon backups, because Again, that's one of those things that you don't ever think about it until you need it. And you don't want to be, trust me when I say, you don't want to be going through, you know, 20 years of, of emails and whatnot to try to figure out what happened. Yeah. So um, definitely make sure there's some duplicity there as far as keeping, you know, multiple copies. Yeah, I, I've always had it housed at a law firm. It costs us like four or 500 bucks a year for them to house it there. And, and the thing I really like about it is, is especially on all the tax stuff, I know that, that our tax firm sends everything to the law firm and the lawyers check off on it and file it in there. And that way I don't have to worry about those tax compliance piece, um, which, which is really convenient. Awesome. Um, I want to just touch on one other point that you and I've talked about before, which is this all important concept of who has the ability to bind the, the, the corporation, right? I, one of the things I see a lot in contracting is like the owner gets busy, you know, Wilma, the office manager, what she can just sign off on stuff. It's very kind of informal. What is important from a legal perspective around this declaration of like who actually has the ability to do certain things like bind the corporation? on stuff and who doesn't sure so there's a couple of uh, different things i want to uh, point out there the first is is uh if your governing documents your bylaws your operating agreement your articles of incorporation whatever it might be don't specifically identify who has the authority to do what then you can't create corporate policies that do dictate that right so you can say look you know um only a vice president can can make purchases over 2500 dollars or whatever it is vice president and above you know um, but, uh, the one thing that should be noted is that oftentimes almost in any written document or written contract, if you do something different in the course of conduct of your business, then that could potentially override that. So let's say you are the sole owner of a business and your documents say that only you can make decisions, but you tell your bookkeeper, it's okay to use the debit card for whatever they want. Well, that's basically you giving that person authority to do that. Right. And, and, you know, that's an issue. The other thing that I think I, I want to mention in passing is it's very important in contracts, um, construction contracts, uh, especially if you use subcontractors, that you specifically identify in the contract who has the ability to execute a change order. Okay. And the reason this is important. Um, look, I wouldn't have a job if it wasn't for an executed change order. So I, I, I know a thing or two about it, but um, the, the biggest issue is that you will get somebody out in the field that doesn't have the authority to do anything that agrees to do something. So if you say, look, John Smith, the VP, is the only person that can agree to a change order, that gives you a great argument to say, nah, this, this person didn't have authority to do that. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and all of this stuff is just extra important as, as you're growing quickly and you're adding 
people like to not have a framework around this and some level of definition around who is and isn't able to do what and to formalize that, um, the wheels can fall off pretty quickly, as, as I'm sure you've, you've seen. So if, especially if, if you're growing, you've got more and more people that you're adding every year, uh, this stuff is super important. So anyway, that's, that's really good. Uh, trying, it's an awesome overview of, of corporate structure and just some things to be aware of. Again, um, there are a couple key players involved here, which is, which is your corporate lawyer and your tax advisor. Both are equally important and both do need do need to communicate quite closely. Like our, like in our case, our our tax guy and our accountant and our lawyer know each other quite well, and it's and it's that's important. That's an important connection to have. Um, okay, you mentioned contracts. Let's move on to the second one. Um, contracts. We've got customers in play. We've got uh, subcontractors. We've got employees. These are all relationships that we're managing with certain expectations. Um, so much of what's going to get you in trouble or keep you out of trouble is is really in how well you structure these. You know, I think the best word for them is agreements. Now they're a bit more formal than that, but it's really an agreement between two people. So tell us when it comes to contracts, like what are some of the biggest issues you often see? Um, what's important for people to keep in mind? Give us a bit of an overview there. Sure. So the first thing that that I always tell contractors is your contract, uh, customer service is always your first line of defense, right? You can resolve 99% of the problems through customer maintenance and management. The contract is the trench that you fall back into when that fails, okay? And that's how I view it. But you want to make sure that your contract has everything that you need in there to protect yourself, not only upstream with your customer, but downstream if you have subcontractors. So some of the mistakes that I see you know, emerging contractors make is they go onto Google and they download a few <laughs> contracts and they mix and match. I call it the Frankenstein contract. And while it sounds good, a lot of times the pieces of the puzzle don't mix right. You know, a contract is a lot like a recipe. If you don't put the ingredients in in the right place, it just doesn't work. So um, what I mean by that is a lot of times I'll see conflicting provisions. I'll see things that shouldn't be in there, things that are obviously missing, um, you know, key key provisions that are missing. Um, just, just a lot of basic mistakes. And uh, normally what, what I recommend is anytime you experience any kind of problem on a project, you should only experience it once before you have some type of provision mm -hmm. that addresses that, you know, so it's a living, breathing document that constantly needs to be adjusted. Totally. And just on the note of these Frankenstein contracts, I think, you know, if, if you've not had a really, really good lawyer that's, that's, that is specialized uh, in this space and ideally in your industry, look through this stuff. Um, something to keep in mind is like you put in thousands upon thousands of hours into, into growing your business, um, a huge amount of money and to not spend a couple thousand bucks to get each of these fundamental contracts in my place, in my opinion, is, is, is crazy. Just the amount of risk you're exposing yourself to. And, um, you know, I feel like at this point I've, I've just from the sheer amount of work I've done, I've got a decent amount of a decent legal background. I can read a contract and be competent. But I, even at this point, I would never go about trying to stitch something together myself because that's not my expertise it's like you don't do your own <laughs> dentistry for lack of a better term term right but it's like 
there there's so much uh that is that can go wrong and and you have to have somebody looking at this to spend a couple thousand bucks on each of these key contracts in my opinion is is an absolute no-brainer um and and so trent tell us a bit about um you know for example if people are getting into larger or more complex jobs um how often do they need to be looking at their contracts like if you as you said they're kind of a living breathing changing document um if people are switching to different service sectors, like from residential to commercial, um, what should trigger a contractor to be like, okay, hang on, I should have my lawyer look at this again? Sure. So there's a few things there. Um, often, you know, uh, if you are working on larger jobs, you're not in a position to give your own contract, and you're often, you know, um, given the contract from the customer or the prime contractor or whoever it might be. So you can almost guarantee that they're going to be incredibly one-sided and you really need to come through it and make sure that you have made whatever revisions or that at least you're going in that project understanding what your potential risk is. Um, the other thing that I would say is that if you are in a position to give your own contract, you need to recognize that as your scope changes, right, as the dollar amount increases, the more risk adverse you need to be. Right. Meaning that, you know, if it was, there's a big difference between a $5,000 project and a $50,000 project. And that requires a lot more um, verbiage. It requires a lot more uh, risk mitigation. And the bigger you get, the more that you've really got to focus on that. So, you know, I, I think that's one of the key things is recognize that as you, you change in scope, you know, there's a variety of things you have to factor in, not just contractually, but licensure and a lot of other things that uh, you know can potentially come back and bite you. Yeah, that's a really key bit. The bigger the jobs that you're working on are, the more there is that can go wrong and the more risk adverse you need to be. It's, it's a really, really good point. Um, how much difference, like from a contract law, law perspective, how much difference is there between different states and different provinces? Like if, I, if I'm operating a company in the state of Illinois, and I go into a different one, um, do I need to be mindful of certain things or is it pretty uniform? Yeah, so um, the bulk of construction contracts, I'd say at least 80%, is probably uniform throughout most of the states and most of the provinces, right? They, they, where the issues come up is there are very specific provisions and very specific requirements in contracts that are usually different in every single state. And I'll give you just a handful of examples, you know, indemnification. For those of our listeners that don't know what that is, it basically says that, let's say you're a subcontractor to the extent that you cause, you know, personal injury or property damage, whatever it might be, you agree to hold your customer harmless. Basically, you agree to identify them and defend them in the event that there's a problem. Every single, almost every single state that I'm aware of, I'm licensed in, in eight or nine, uh, it has different identification laws, right? So um, you have to be very careful. A lot of times this is governed by statute uh, and you've got to really watch out for it. Another great example is contingent payment. Uh, in certain uh, locations, it will say that I, the contractor, don't have to pay you, the subcontractor, until I receive payment by the owner. Okay, there are many states that do not allow that and there are some states that do. So we do work in, in Illinois, but we also do work in Indiana and they're right next to each other. And it's, it's literally night and day what you can do and what you can't do. So to answer your question, a lot of the stuff is, is uniform and will apply, but there are absolutely key things in every single state that you need to understand. And not just contractually, you know, from the standpoint of, of you know, permits and licensure and a lot of other things, rules and regulations that are specific to that location. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So for listeners, just to summarize, um, if you, you know, if if you're ever if you're into a situation where you're either moving into a different type of uh, either product offering or a different category, like from residential to commercial, or you're taking on significantly larger jobs, or you're looking at operating in other states, any one of these changes or factors is is a really good cue to go to your lawyer and have a bit of a consultation and say, hey, here is the you know, the the actual agreement that we use with customers or here's our employment agreement. How is this going to change now that we're thinking of doing X? And and I have these kind of conversations with with our counsel all the time. Uh, we've got a great legal library. I mean, we're a bit of a more complex kind of organization, but we've got 23 different agreements in our library for all sorts of different things, right down to, you know, photographers being at events. Um uh, so from big to small, but things, whenever things are changing or we're doing things in a different geography or we're doing different types of work, it's always a cue to, to have a bit of a consultation with your lawyer, even though you, you might have what you think is a really good kind of ba- base agreement. Um, one more quick question for you, Trent, before we move on uh, to the third kind of important foundation here. Uh, we, t- we mentioned a couple times employment agreements. Um, so many of the issues that contractors get themselves into are, are rooted here. Um, what do business owners need to be really mindful of when it comes to employment agreements? So employment is one of those things that is also, you know, state or province specific, depending on, on where you're doing work. And the first thing that you need to, to figure out is, you know, are, are you, uh, is this a uh, union situation where there's a collective bargaining agreement or uh, is this at will employment or how does it work, right? Uh, for your key employees, you probably want some form of employment agreement that uh, goes through, um, you know, what they can do, what they can't do, but also, you know, talks about confidentiality, talks about solicitation of employees or customers. Um, and in certain locations, you can do non-competes, which basically prevents them from competing against you for a certain amount of time. Again, very specific based on the location of where you're at, but um, for those key employees, you really want to think about having some kind of document that spells out exactly what you can do in the event that things go wrong. Yeah, really good, uh, really good thoughts. Um, if you haven't had your employment agreement checked off by a highly competent lawyer that ideally is specialized in, in this space and haven't looked at it in some time, uh, I think this is definitely a good a good cue to do. So on that note, um, Trent, something that, that, that I am excited about. So for everyone listening, we are going to be putting together a contract checklist that Trent has assembled uh, where it's linked right now in the link in the description. So it's in the show notes. Uh, you can go ahead and download it there. It's a it's a checklist of things that you want to be aware of in in all of your of, in all of your contracts, um, and uh, and Trent's contact information along with his firm will be in there as well. So go ahead and check that out in the link in the description. The contract checklist. Um, so let's move on to the third one here, Trent. So what is what is kind of the next um, really important bit here that's important for everyone to understand around employee manuals and SOPs. Sure. So keeping on the, the theme of employment, you know, it is when you start a company off, it's usually just, you know, you and a group of people that, you know, and things like employee manuals may not seem as important, but as you grow, it's very important that you, you have the policies and procedures of your company in place so that you have something to enforce. Right. 
And what I recommend is that, you know, you, you need certain things um, to talk about, you know, not only when people come to work, how they should dress, what they should do, that kind of stuff, but to get into the more complex issues. Like, you know, recently with work from home and hybrid work, there's a lot of policies and procedures that you need to think about there. Everything from share technology, if you've given them a cell phone or a laptop or whatever it is, you know, your ability to view that information. Uh, social media policies. Uh, there's a variety of different um, policies that govern things like paid time off, you know, vacation benefits, um, termination, all these different types of things. And the one thing that, that I want to impress upon our listeners is where you get in trouble as an employer most of the time is disparate treatment, meaning that if you treat one employee different than another, that's when you get into trouble. Mm -hmm. So an employee manual, just like a contract, it forms the basis, right? It forms the cornerstone that you go back to. Everybody needs to know what that policy is. Everybody needs to receive it. Everybody needs to sign off on it. And then if there's some issue, you can always point to the employee manual and say, look, we're following what we said we were going to do when we hired you. This is the procedure. This is the disciplinary policy. This is how we go about doing things. Yeah, so it, it's it's uniform across the board. It also pulls out some of the emotion out of it and says, like, look, this is what you were hired to do. This is what was discussed, and you're not doing it, right? Um, absolutely. Something that that we see so much in in our industry is uh, is is where, where the owner is disappointed at something that that is happening or isn't happening. But the question is, is like was this formalized, right? If you're going to Steve, your office manager, and saying, Steve, look, why was this payment let out? Like this, I didn't sign off on it. Why did you do this? Well, was that outline in the SOP of how that works? And is there a formal process there that he knows that he needs to follow? Um, it's hard to hold people accountable and to discipline them and stuff if that expectation hasn't, hasn't been set. Um, Trent, tell me just in the context of these employee manuals and SOPs, like when there are issues with staff, people doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing or not doing things that they should be doing, um, what's the role of this manual in in keeping track of some of these issues that are coming up so that if you do end up having to get into a termination issue that you're not running into wrongful dismissal problems? Sure. So it's it's a few things. You know, one of the things that, that I want to recommend just from a practical standpoint is when you hire somebody, right? It's very important to have a very detailed job description. Okay, you need to be able to explain to the person that you're hiring, this is what I expect you to do. And it needs to be granular, right? You need to say, I expect you to be able to lift 25 pounds over your head, you know, operate a forklift. And then what that does is it puts those employees in a box, right? So that if they go outside of that box, then there's issues. Right. And I don't see that a lot. I see, you know, job descriptions put on Indeed or Monster or wherever for purposes of hiring, but I don't see the follow through in making sure that everybody understands exactly what the requirements are. So in the event that there is um, an occasion that requires discipline, you know, you follow your employee manual and you issue those written notifications. Those written notifications help build a case. You know, it's, it's one thing to be disappointed in somebody. And to say you're disappointed, it's another thing to have, uh, you know, a, a systematic process where you are showing consistently that this person is disregarding a policy. And then one of the practice pointer that I kind of want to mention there is that in the event that you need to dole out discipline, and this could be anything from, you know, on the job site, if somebody's not doing what they're supposed to do, to in the home office, whatever it might be, always have two people there. 
any any time that you do that, I call it you know the Fight Club rule. Basically, uh, what what you need to do is make sure. And in that in that movie, what happened is the individual went in, uh, had no witness there, and if you remember from the movie, beat himself up and then ended up making a claim. Well, you can prevent all that if you've got uh, a second person there that acts as a witness for what you said. And remember, less is always more. Okay, don't ever get emotional when it comes to doling out discipline. You've got to make sure that you are staying calm, cool, and collected. And it doesn't, it doesn't, this isn't about proving you're right. It's about extricating yourself from the situation as quickly as possible and having both parties move on with their lives. Yeah, re really good thoughts there. The The thing that, that I like about having this formalized is that you kind of accomplish two things at once if you're if you're formally putting this this inside of, of a manual with some sign-off because you're basically saying to that individual that isn't following some sort of expectation of, hey, we recognize that this isn't being followed and it's not okay. Um, we're formally pointing this out. Can you please sign off? To be that you're clear that we've had this conversation and that we I've given you a clear warning and that this isn't going to happen again. There's a there's this way more uh, effective I think than you just <laughs> I think you use a good word being disappointed in someone um, and applying that level of formality because the um, the likelihood that that behavior is going to change is I think significantly higher when it's formalized. So that that's one big benefit. And then the second benefit is if that doesn't change the second time or the third time, you've got a very clear case that's documented that uh, that you've actually gone through this a number of times. And if you run into a dismissal, if you're forced to dismiss this person, um, you're way less likely to have any kind of legal issues there so it's good it's awesome um and then and then this other bit i just want to highlight that what what trent said like you know we have our hr person on a lot of these important meetings and and a lot of times for a practical case but it is also so that there's always three people there and it's not just like a, a, a one against the other so it's awesome um and and uh i i but the point that you said earlier around job descriptions we talk a lot about this on the show and it's a core part of the breakthrough academy program having a ton of definition around what it is that people do and how you expect them to do it right right down to like the expectations you have to be able to lift 25 pounds over your head not just you need to be able to roof um, so get, getting granular on that is, is so important for a variety of reasons. Um, at one of which is, is this legal side. Um, okay, let's, let's move on here. So that's, that, that's employee manuals and SOPs. Let's get into safety. Another huge, huge risk point. Like we are unfortunately in an industry that by nature has all sorts of safety complexities. Um, we've got people in, in all sorts of environments where a ton of stuff can go wrong. What is important Trent when it comes to safety as it relates to the legal protection side of things? Sure. So safety, like you said, is absolutely critical. Every penny that you spend on safety is a penny well spent. Um, and, you know, we do a ton of OSHA defense, OSH defense, and we have the opportunity to kind of see what goes wrong. So I can tell you when I'm defending those cases, uh, and, you know, for those of you that don't know, these are the government entities that enforce safety. Um, the biggest problem that I see is just the lack of documentation that supports the safety program. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the th key things that you need to have, obviously, is you need a very strong safety manual that's current, that uh, focuses on every aspect of your work. And to the extent that you have non-English speaking employees, you want to make sure that your safety manual is in that language. So, you know, obviously the dominant one is Spanish, but uh, we've had in, uh, manuals translated into everything from Italian to German to Japanese. So. Right. 
um, that's very important that you've got that follow through. You know, the next thing I, I really recommend is uh, engage in regular toolbox talks where you are showing those government entities that you have a culture of safety. Um, you know, it's important to have, you know, regular talks on things like PPE and, you know, HASCOM and, um, you know, fall protection and whatever else is, is important for your workplace so that you can show that you're actively engaged in, in that kind of uh, due diligence. Um, next is I really recommend, you know, um, going through a process where you are looking for problems. You are actively looking for safety issues, you know, and, and that can be uh, equipment checks at the start of a job. It can be audits of job sites when you go out and uh, taking a look at things. Um, but it, it's very important that you have not just a manual, but that you are following through with that idea of safety. That is what uh, the outside world is going to look at if for some reason there's a problem. Yeah. And if somebody is listening to this and thinking to themselves, man, uh, we don't have much in the way of a safety manual or it's 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 pretty, you know, simple and grassroots and 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 they're realizing hey, that th this could be a bit of a problem, both like practically in terms of keeping our people safe and also keeping us uh, legally protected. What's a good starting point? Are they talking to a lawyer or a law firm like you? Or are they going to a safety consultant? Where where would someone start if, if they really need to beef this up? Sure. So we do safety manuals, but there are also a variety of safety consultants that can do it. There's uh, some online resources. The only thing that I would really recommend is make sure that you're obtaining a safety manual that deals with every aspect of your business, right? You really need to have one that um, handles the scope of what your business is, but also the unique issues that may be in your location. Uh, we had a, a recent issue where there was um, a state that transitioned to recreational marijuana, and there were a lot of issues that happened as a result of, um, you know, impairment. And one of the big issues was that the safety manual didn't have training or the signs of impairment on job sites. So uh, it's important that as the rules and regulations update, that you also update your manual. Yeah. And I'm assuming like from a practical perspective, it is also important for contractors to be aware, like if you start engaging in any different kinds of activities in terms of the actual work that you're doing, that I would imagine would should trigger um, some additions or, or an audit to safety. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So let's say you, you know, let's say you were doing, you know, stucco and that type of work and you transition into doing, you know, structural steel or roofing or HVAC or whatever it might be. There are different PPE requirements. There may be different fault protection requirements. There are a variety of different things that come into play that uh, you might not have considered. And one of the things that any government agency that's looking at you is going to ask, they will say, you know, has your person been trained on X? And that's a very easy thing for them to do. It's either yes or no. And if it's no, then you're going to get a citation. So um, the goal is, is, is take a step back before you take a step forward just to make sure that you have got the proper safety stuff in place before you take on another whole aspect to your business. Awesome. One last, just quick, very practical question on this one. Um, if I'm kind of 
looking at this and saying, well, you know, we've got a, a good manual. We are practicing a number of, of you know, we, 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 we've got toolbox talks that we do. We've got good safety training that we do, but none of it is really documented. What is important? Like how, how tell me practically how this works. Like where should I be documenting stuff if I do have an audit from OSHA or from WCB um, or whichever entities in your area? Uh, you know, how do I keep this easily accessible? What do, what do I need to maintain and where? Okay, so just like we were, what we were talking about with the corporate records and maintaining your books, recommend doing the same thing with um, your safety docs, right? So you should have a centralized location where you have your safety manual, your toolbox talks, your audits, right? And your job site audits can include photos and inspection reports, things like that. Any third-party consulting or training. Um, it's fairly easy to get online training now where you don't have to sit in a classroom for 30 hours. You can do an OSHA 30 course at your at your leisure you know and those types of things but the key thing like you said is having it all in one place the employee sign-offs right because if one of these government agencies comes they're going to want these documents immediately you right. know they're going to want your osha logs they're going to want these you know evidence of disciplinary uh, measures that have been taken because of safety violations all this stuff you're not going to have you know 10 days to start sorting through stuff you got to be able to produce it yeah. Awesome. Really, really good wisdom there. I love it. Um, fantastic trend. Okay. Let's move on to, to our kind of our fifth one. I like to think of this as a, as a bonus fifth one, cause it's a bit different than, than all of these other fundamentals you got to have in place, but, but it is really important. Um, tell us a bit about this crisis management plan. I think that's something that, that a lot of people don't really think about when in, in something to, to prepare, but absolutely stuff goes wrong, whether it's theft, it's a data breach, um, it's, it's, it's some sort of, uh, like key people getting ill or, or God forbid a death. Um, tell us a bit about like what contractors need to be aware of as they're growing when it comes to crisis management and having proactive plans in place. Sure. So part of any strategic planning that you're doing. So if you're, you know, engaged in a business and you've got a, a planning session where you are trying to figure out what next steps are, um, what you need to think about is, you know, what could potentially shut the doors of my business? And it's not a pleasant thing to think about. Nobody wants to think about that, right? But the goal is if you help identify what those issues are, you can gameplay them, right? You can figure out, okay, if there is uh, a natural disaster, right? If there's a hurricane or a flood and I can't get access to my building, what do I do, okay? And that's when you put an SOP, a standard operating procedure in place that checks it off, okay? What if I die? God forbid, horrible thing to think about, right? But if you understand, okay, if I'm incapacitated, if I can't do this, here's who take command, here's who's next. What if there is, you know, theft or, um, you know, a cyber problem or, um, anything like that, you know, and what you do is you, you take the time to think about it when you're calm, you're cool, you're collected, you put that down in, in a sort of a game plan. And then when it hap if it happens, God forbid, if it happens, then instead of being anxious and fearful about it, which you may still be, you can pick up the play sheet and go write down exactly what you're supposed to do, right? And that's the key thing is there are so many legal mistakes that are made mm -hmm. during a crisis type situation. A great example is, you know, we did, uh, we represented uh, contractors in 42 different fatalities last year. 
And when you have a serious injury or fatality, there are a lot of moving parts that happen very quick. Um, the it could be everything from you know the press contacting you to uh, bad guy lawyers out there, personal injury lawyers that are trying to come after you to dealing with OSHA to all these different things. And if you don't have a playbook in place, if you don't understand how to deal with those issues, you are going to make critical missteps. So one of the key things that I really recommend is as horrible as it is thinking about these things, if you do it in advance and you have a plan in place and everybody knows where that plan is and what to do, then you're not going to make missteps that could potentially get you into worse legal trouble. Yeah, those are yeah, those are really really tough and horrible situations to think about like to have fatalities on on, on your job sites but like certainly when you think about like the the emotional turmoil that would cause on 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 you or on anyone um yeah, you'd be so much more likely to to make all kinds of mistakes and th- th- those are pretty extreme and and I can imagine that being super challenging but one like much more um, you know, common one that, that that I've heard about so many times in the last two to three years is 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 stuff related to banking and online like ransomware, uh, different like data breaches, cyber attacks. Um, we actually we have an IT uh, consulting and cybersecurity company that manages all of our stuff, and and even the stories that I hear from them. Um, it is a very common thing nowadays and and it is you might not be thinking about it every day but what would you do if all of your accounts were locked off if your if your own server and domain started sending emails to all of your customers you know demanding their credit card information like these things absolutely do happen and having a game plan in in the what ifs um is pretty important because uh as trent as you said like when you're when you're in kind of um when you're in a challenging kind of emotional state, when these things do happen, you're, you're much more likely to make mistakes, right? Right, right. And you know, something else you just kind of mentioned, I think it's worth touching on is be careful about putting all your eggs in one basket. Uh, really recommend that you might have a primary banking relationship and you need one, you know, for right. purposes of getting access to a credit line, but it doesn't hurt to have a second operating account on another bank. You know, you, you never know when, when you might need it. So it's a lot better to have that stuff set up, even if you got a nominal, you know, amount in there, so that it's up and running in the event that you need to go to it. Yeah, awesome. Uh, I love it. Really, really good. Uh, one last quick question on this one, um, Trent. Something you mentioned to me before is like, if something like this does happen, from something as relatively common as, as a cyber attack to something as awful as as a fatality on a job site. Um, you talked about the importance of just being careful of what you do publicly say and don't and how you go about things. Tell us a bit, like if, if a contractor ends up in a situation, big or small, where there is some sort of crisis situation, what did they need to be mindful of in terms of how they act towards their employees, their customers, the press? What's important there? So as far as, as employees, the one thing that I would recommend is be human, right? So, so many employers are so scared of what to do in liabilities, they forget the human aspect. So I'll use the fatality as an example. You know, I think it's very important. You're, all your employees are looking at you and when something horrible like that happens. And regardless of liability, regardless of what issues are there, always recommend reaching out to the family, providing, you know, saying my condolences, you know, uh, sorry for your loss. Uh, Talk to your employees, you know, have, I've had some employers offer counseling, do other kinds of things, you know, you, you want to get out ahead of it from 
um, you know, a relational standpoint, um, you know, with advice of counsel, you obviously, you don't want to say anything that's, that's inappropriate, but you do need to show that you care when dealing with the press. It's a very difficult thing. And I've, you know, uh, I've had to talk to the press a bunch for a variety of different things and you might give them five minutes and they'll use five seconds. And sometimes the message doesn't come across exactly the way that you want it. So my recommendation is, uh, have a centralized person that is supposed to speak to the press. Uh, and you want to be very careful about your messaging. Okay. Uh, if you talk to them at all, okay. And it, it's not in pro say you don't have a comment at this time, but I've had some contractors say, look, I want to get something out there cause I know everybody's going to see it. So a type of message that I would say is, you know, at such and such company, uh, you know, first, first thing I want to say is, um, you know, our thoughts and prayers go out to the family. This is a horrible loss for, for our company and for everyone that's involved. Uh, at such and such company, we take safety incredibly, you know, as serious as possible. We're actively looking into this issue uh, and look forward to working with government agencies to to move forward. Something like that. You, you just like you respond to rep, reputational stuff on, with reviews. You always want to take a high road. You always want to make sure that anyone that's looking at it understands that you do care. That this is not just you hiding because you're concerned about potential legal problems. Awesome. Awesome. Good, good, uh, re- really good advice on, on all these things, Trent. I just want to kind of recap the big thing that I think I'm just taking away from, from this entire conversation is, is the importance of being proactive on everything legal, whether it's, it's around these, these kind of crisis mitigation plans we talked about around employee safety and manuals and documentation around, uh, SOPs and having processes in place, contracts, corporate structure, all these things. I think the really common thread is they're all things you can and should be doing right now if they're not buttoned up. None of these are kind of situations like when stuff goes wrong. These are all things to have in place as you're growing to mitigate and any any big issues uh, long term. So um, really great, Trent. We, we've covered a ton of stuff. Again, the contracts are, 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 I think, the lowest hanging fruit. Go ahead and download this contract checklist that Trent has put together for us. Uh, it is in the show notes. Click the link in the description to get it. And uh, and Trent, tell us a bit about like if, if people are looking at any of these factors and saying, man, I need to put a bit more thought into this, whether it's in our corporate structure, in our safety manuals, and they want to reach out and chat with you. Tell us a bit about like your background and expertise in the construction space and where people can can connect with you. Sure, sure. So uh, I've been practicing for almost 25 years exclusively in construction. Um, you know, I serve as general counsel for a variety of different associations, trade associations such as the National Roofing Contractors Association. Um, I am at the law firm of Adams and Reese. Uh, we recently uh, merged with them and uh, combined we were one of the largest national law firms in the United States. Um, I will be their practice group leader here uh, in a couple of months. Uh, and obviously we've got a, a team of professionals that can handle anything and everything from construction to employment to you name it. Um, so you can reach me directly uh, via email at trent.cotney at arlaw.com. You can go to our website, adamsandreese.com, or feel free to call me. You can call me at 813-402-2880. 
Awesome. And we'll get that all linked up in the show description down below uh, with Trent's contact information as well as well as the firm. So Trent, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's definitely been been an insightful chat. Again, remember guys, it is the, the proactive protection that is going to be your best spend of every legal dollar all the time that you invest in legal because keeping yourself out of trouble is the name of the game. So Trent, thanks again for, for coming on. I uh, really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been great. Thanks so much for watching this episode of Contractor Evolution. If you've already subscribed to our channel, consider sharing this episode with another contractor who you think needs to hear it. Paint Ed podcasts are produced by the Painting Contractors Association and is made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPaintEd.org.